Well, as Matt said at the beginning of the service, we've really come to the last leg of this journey to the cross that we call Lent. And with it, we've really come to the first day of the final week of the life of Jesus. Jesus Christ, as we're going to see, and as we celebrate on Palm Sunday every single year, is coming to the city of Jerusalem. He's going to enter into the city of Jerusalem, and He is coming to the city of Jerusalem. He's already declared this. He knows this. It's His purpose. He is coming to die. And I want you to think about that, and then think about that in terms of the timing of all of this. In other words, Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem to die at the time of the Passover. Now that makes a lot of sense if you understand the Passover. Why? Because what is the Passover? It is that annual celebration in which Jews from all over the world come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate what? God's great deliverance of them from slavery and from death in the biblical land of the dead, the place where all the mummies come from. In Egypt, where they were enslaved for 430 years until God, through this deliverer named Moses, brought them up out of the land of Egypt. But how did they do it? Like, what was the the final decisive act of deliverance? How were they delivered in the end? It was through the blood of perfect, spotless, innocent lambs. Think about that. So in other words, God came to His people there in Egypt. They're all enslaved. And He said, all right, guys, so there's some things you need to know. So thing number one. Thing number one is that a day of judgment is coming. And I want to stop there for a second and just kind of acknowledge that in our day, in our age, in our culture, that is really archaic sounding language. Is it not like, I'm? oh, you're going to talk about judgment. You're thinking, good grief. How long is this going to be? Isn't that true? We don't speak in terms of those things. We don't think in terms of those things, at least not overtly. Those people did back then. For us, it's kind of a been there, done that sort of a phrase. It's an idea or a concept that just feels to us old and used. But I wanted you to think about that for a minute, because I think deep down in our hearts, we actually all believe in judgment. And I think that for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that all of us deep down in our hearts know that we're made for something more. Don't we? I mean, we all of us come forth from the womb eager to do something significant, and not just significant in our lifetime, but something that actually effectively endures beyond our lifetime. We feel like we were made for a purpose. We just don't know what the purpose is, and so what we do is we create purposes for ourselves, don't we? And so we try to find significance and value for ourselves in what we acquire or in what we do or in in what we're able to gain competencies in and what we can get people to applaud us for. And in the applause of other people, we feel lifted up and significant And even though deep down in our hearts, we honestly know that that applause is not enduring, that that applause is actually very fickle, and that even if it lasts the whole of our lives, it's not going to last for forever. And we feel like we're made for, for a forever. Guys, if there is a God, and what we're saying is that there is, and if indeed He created you, and what we're saying is that He did, then did He not create you for a purpose? Did He not create you according to some kind of a sovereign, divine design? I mean, just look at the whole of the universe. My goodness, look at the way the planets and the stars move with such amazing predictability. Why? Because they are designed to. Everything's designed. And I think deep down in our own hearts, as much as we want to say no to judgment... We can't deny the fact that we have been created for something that we're not able to satisfy for ourselves. And that something calls forth, therefore, the reality that the one who created us for what alone does satisfy will at least in the end go, hey, how'd you do with that life that I gave you? 
Why is it that the universal response of people everywhere to Almighty God is one of fear? Think about that. Like if God walked in here today, I don't think we'd be back slapping and high-fiving him. Hey man, so great to meet you finally. I've heard all about you. You know, We'd be knocking our teeth out on the floor. Think about that. We all believe in judgment. We suppress it. We deny it. We don't like to think about it in our passions. We're going, no, that's archaic. But something deep down within us says, yeah, that actually exists. And so God comes to His people. They're in the land of Egypt. And He speaks to them in their sort of unique predicament of slavery and death in the land of the dead. Okay, And He says, guys, things you need to know. One, judgment day is coming. Two, on that day, I'm going to judge all the guilty people. And then here's what they thought, because this is what we think. We think, good, that must be somebody else. You know, for them, it was the Egyptians. Oh, well, clearly what he means by judgment is he's going to bring judgment on the Egyptians. That's not what he says. I'm going to bring judgment on all the guilty people. So three, God says, you need to know what a guilty person looks like. So then what is that, Lord? Because we know this already deep down in here. I've already said it. It's anyone who takes the life that God created for the singularly greatest purpose ever, for the most dignified existence, which is to be lived for him. No greater cause, no higher end, and uses it the way that I've done, the way that you've done, in a variety of creative ways to live for other people and other things, including ourselves. So God says, all right, judgment day is coming. On that day, I'm going to judge the guilty, all the guilty. Three, that's what a guilty person looks like. So four, everybody's guilty, Egyptians, Israelites, and whoever else happens to be wandering through Egypt at that particular time. And so five, here's what you all need. You need a substitute. You've got to find a way out of this judgment. You have to find something or someone that can take the judgment that you deserve and release you from it. So a price has to be paid and somebody's going to pay it and you want somebody else to pay it, do you not? And so God came to his people and said, I have an answer for this. It's amazing. It's incredible. You're going to love this. An innocent lamb is going to pay the price for you. So here's what you need to do, Israelites. Go find perfect, spotless, innocent lambs. Take their lives, innocent for the guilty. And then take their blood, the the emblem of life. It flows through your veins. When it stops moving, you stop moving. And I want you to paint the doorposts and the thresholds, the, the, the lintels of your homes with the blood of the innocent lamb, and then on the day of judgment, I want you people to get underneath the blood, if you will, and then here's what I got I'm going to do. I'm going to pass over all the people for whom the price has been paid. How do I know that? Because I see the blood of the innocent lamb, and I'll visit those who don't do that, whose price must be paid by them. And so that's exactly how it plays out. And of course, the Israelites have the blood of the lamb. They are safe from the judgment of the Lord. They're passed over, thus the name, but the Egyptians, not so much. And then Pharaoh calls Moses in the middle of the night. He said, listen, you got to get over here right now. We've had a bad night as a nation. And finally, I'm sending you out of here. Like I'm not just granting you freedom to leave. I'm compelling you to get out of my country right now. And the Israelites are free to go and they go out into the wilderness. But what's their destination? Because it's kind of like ours. They're going to the promised land. The place of abundance, the place that God has for them. Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus Christ comes to lay down His life 
at the time of the Passover. Why is that not surprising? Because at the beginning of his ministry, he is identified as the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of all the people in the world who do what? Who acknowledge what their heart knows to be true. That they were made for something more. That there's a Creator God, that there's accountability, that judgment, as archaic as it sounds, actually exists and will one day come. And that all of us are guilty, like not just the Egyptians, me, <laughs> you, that we need a substitute, that Jesus is that substitute, and by the claiming of His blood shed in our behalf, our debt is paid, our, our, our judgment is satisfied, and we're delivered from sin, and in the end, from death itself, and to what? What lies before us? The eternal promised land. Okay, it's no surprise that Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem to die, to lay down his life as the Lamb of God at the time of the Passover. What is, however, surprising is the manner in which he comes. How he does it. That's the surprising part. And I say that because if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, if you've studied through it at all, then one of the things that you know is that he moves through his ministry making an active, conscious effort to, in a sense, conceal his identity, for at least publicly. Like his disciples know who he is, the woman at the well he reveals himself to, the man born blind he reveals himself to. But these are very unique instances. Most of the time, what is Jesus doing? He's doing these great miracles that evidence the fact that obviously he's the Messiah, obviously he is God-made man, obviously he is the long-awaited for king. And then he says to them, listen, don't tell anybody about this, okay? Just kind of let's just keep this between ourselves. I know that you appreciate it, great. Shh, just don't, don't mention it, don't mention it, don't mention it. Don't mention it. Guys, keep it down, keep it quiet. Why does he do that? Doesn't he want to be known? I mean, good grief, he tells us to go out into all the world and tell everybody about him. Is he trying to keep himself a secret? No. And today, you'll see that. All of that ends with this story today. Jesus knows, however, that there's a connection between when he reveals himself and when he dies. I mean, if you think about it, this story that we're going to look at happened on Palm, what? Sunday, first day of the week. Yeah, when we gather on Friday night for Good Friday... That's five days later. Within five days, Jesus has been crucified and buried. And he has disciples to train. And he has a whole corpus of material to teach. He has miracles to do. He has signs and wonders that evidence who he is, that he must display. He has prophecy upon prophecy from the Old Testament about what the Messiah would do and what he would say and how he would be and all of those things that very meticulously he has to fulfill. And so he doesn't want to die too early. He dies at the right time. It's all perfectly orchestrated. And so he comes to Jerusalem to die because now it's all been done except for the very significant last week that he enters into by announcing very definitively by means of his actions who he is and who is he. He is not just a king but he is the king. And so I think the natural native human response to that, like the question that the story then engenders is this. It's all right, so then what kind of a king? Because that's what we want to know. I mean, we want to know that about our politicians for crying out loud, and we elect them. We confer power. We give them power for a time, and they have term limits. And we can vote them out of office. Okay, yeah, none of that works with a king. 
He's not voted in. He's not voted out. He doesn't lick his finger and stick it up to see which way public opinion is. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. He's not trying to win your vote and make you his friend. He's not. Yet he's the best friend you'll ever have because of what he's like, because of who he is. But king sounds scary to me. And so, Tom, all right, so you're telling me that I have a king, even if I don't acknowledge that, even if I don't believe that, even if I'm not into that, even if I don't want that, yeah. Well, then what's he like? So we pick up our study with that in mind in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1, where Matthew says this. He says, now when they, and I want to pause three words in, sorry, you need to know who the they is. The they is obviously Jesus, it's obviously his disciples, but the rest of the crowd matters. The rest of the crowd is pretty much every Jewish person in Galilee who can make this trip. What trip? The trip to Jerusalem from Galilee up in the north for the Passover celebration. They would have all come, that's the point. And what has Jesus done up in Galilee? Well, let's see, he's done 80% of everything that he does in his earthly ministry. 80% of his miracles, 80% of his teaching. I mean, if you're looking for a group of people who have seen and heard the majority of all that Jesus has done, it's that group of people up there in Galilee. And what have they been wondering for pretty much three years now? Are you the king? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Because here's the deal. Every time we turn around, you're doing something that only he can do. And yet he keeps going, shh, let's not talk about that. Let's suppress that. Let's keep that under wraps. I've got other things to do. Don't say that about me. But now they're coming to Jerusalem. And they cross over the Jordan River from Galilee and they come down the east side and they cross over the Jordan River again, just above the Dead Sea, and they have to walk through the city of Jericho to continue their trail up, literally, to Jerusalem. And as they come through the city with Jesus and thousands upon thousands of these pilgrims traveling together with him, going, wow, is this going to be the time where he declares himself? They come through the city of Jericho and at the gate on the way out of town, there are two blind beggars and they hear from the crowd that Jesus has come. And, and, and they know who he is like they've heard of him. And so they cry out to him in a technical term that all of these Jewish people would have understand. They said, son of David, son of David, come and heal us. What is son of David? That's the anointed one, the Messiah, the long-awaited king. That's who they're claiming that he is. They're crying out for his attention using that language, which recalls Matthew chapter 9, when two other blind beggars cried out in exactly the same way. And what did Jesus do? He went over there, he healed them. And then what did he say to them? Hey, you know what? Let's keep this between ourselves. Okay, but not this time. This time he is coming through Jericho. Son of David, come, you know, heal us. Jesus heals them. And he does not suppress their praise. He embraces it. And the ripple through the crowd had to be electric, man. Because for the first time, he is now embracing that title And that's exactly what all these people have been looking for, waiting for, longing for, and wanting him to do. It says, when they, Jesus, the disciples, that now electrified crowd, drew near to Jerusalem, having come up from Jericho, and they came to Bethpage, which was located about two miles east of the city of Jericho, and it's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So it's Bethpage, Mount of Olives, and Jerusalem right on the other side is the idea. They came to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus stopped, and he sent two of his disciples into Bethpage, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, 
and now notice the detail of this, it's amazing. And immediately when you walk in, here's what you're gonna find. You will find a donkey tied and a colt with the donkey. And so what I want you to do is untie the donkeys and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you like, hey man, you're stealing my donkey. Like, what are you doing? Then you shall say the Lord needs them. And he, meaning the man who thinks, you know, until that point that you're stealing his donkeys and for good reason, will send them at once. And you say, but how does he know that? Well, we're wondering, what kind of king is he? Well, he's not like me, not that I'm a king. He's not like you. He's clearly not like any other human king. You know, here's what I can't do for you. I can't say, hey, you know, when church is over, I want you to go to Winn-Dixie. And when you pull into the Winn-Dixie parking lot, I want you to drive 14 spots in, and then there's going to be an opening in the 14th spot. I want you to take a left turn into the 14th spot, park your car. There's going to be a guy in a red Toyota 4Runner. He's going to be located in the you know, spot immediately next to you. When you get out of your car, he's going to get out of his car. He's going to walk up to you. He's already going to know your name. He's going to give you $148.63 because I already know in advance that when you go into Winn-Dixie and you grab everything that you need and you throw it in your little shopping cart and you get all the way up to the register, that's what it's going to cost. I can't do that. You can't do that. No one can do that except the one who is the God himself. He's not an ordinary man. He knows the minutest details of every one of our lives. So when we walk in, immediately you're going to see the donkeys and, and then a guy's going to come over and then you're going to say this and then he's going to be cool with it, which is bizarre. And then you're going to take them and you're going to think about that. It's remarkable. And all of this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what? Another prophecy. Which one is this? What was spoken by the prophet Zechariah five and a half centuries before Jesus was even born, saying, say this, say to the daughter of Zion, say to God's people, behold your, and here's the word that is the word for the day, because it's what Jesus is so obviously declaring himself by his actions to be. Your king is coming to you, but what kind of a king is he? Well, I think we can agree that he is a forgiving king right out of the gate. And he is a merciful king that he is a just king, that he is a holy king, that he upholds all of those things because, yeah, the judgment thing that's coming, but that he is a loving king who overcomes that. And he overcomes it at his own expense, that he might have you and then put you to the very purposes that he created you to have, that you might do things that endure and that mean something and that matter in the end, that go long beyond your lifetime. I think we'd have to say that he's also a king that is all-knowing, that he knows all the intimate details of your life. Last night it was kind of funny. I said he knows everything about you and your donkeys. And then without realizing what I was saying, I said, okay, so you don't have donkeys, but you do have children. And then, and then I thought to myself, oh man, you know, I just insulted everybody's children, including my own, which I didn't mean to do, for the record. But what I mean is, he knows everything about your family. He knows everything about your business. He knows everything about your possessions. He knows everything in every moment, real time, about everything. Why? Because he is not like me. He is not like you. He is infinite in his capacities. He can focus 100% of himself 100% of the time on every single one of us. And in fact, he does. It's astonishing. But what else is he? Because we're told here, we're told that he is also humble. And here's how you know, or at least here's how they knew, okay? 
because he comes mounted on a donkey as opposed to a war horse, and that's significant, on a colt, in fact, the foal or the baby of a beast of burden. And this too is very intentional by Jesus because in doing this, he's saying to this crowd who knows prophecies like this, hey guys, guess who I am? I'm the long-awaited for prophesied about king. And then in addition to that, he's mimicking what the kings of Israel themselves did, or at least the great ones. David is, is displaced from the capital city by his son Absalom, who rises up in rebellion against him. And David's army and Absalom's army have to war against one another. And David wins the war. And then David comes back into the city. How does he come back into the city? On a war horse ready to chop off the heads of everybody who sided with Absalom? No. He comes humble and in peace. He rides a donkey. In David's old age, one of his other sons, Adonijah, rose up and basically campaigned for the kingship. I want to become king next. And he tried to behave in a kingly way and only succeeded to show his own pride. He entered into the city behind a team of horses. David says, you will not be king. Solomon is going to be king. How does Solomon come? Does he come looking for everybody who put a big Adonijah sign out in their yard so he can chop off their heads? He comes on a donkey. The kings of Israel, when they go to war, ride horses. When they come humbly and in peace, they ride donkeys. And in Jesus' case, he's riding a donkey that's never been ridden. He's riding the baby donkey. You get that? He's riding an unbroken animal. Think about that for a second, because you have to break animals in to ride them typically, do you not? And yet this animal is at peace as he submits all of his agitation, if you will all of his other designs, all of his desires for freedom to the designs of his Creator. I think there is a lot to learn from that donkey about rest, about peace, about purpose, about all of those things. But in addition to that, and these people understood that if you were going to take an animal and then consecrate it, use it for a sacred purpose, you had to use an animal that had never before been used for a common purpose. And there is a sacred purpose going on here in this story. And the sacred purpose is the discovery. It is the, it is the coming out of the King who is Jesus Christ. And so then we read in verse 6 that the disciples went and they did as Jesus directed them. Into the city, find the donkeys, tell the dude to just chill out because the Lord is going to use them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they put on top of these animals their cloaks. And then Jesus sat on the cloaks like you and I would sit on a saddle and he doesn't ride both donkeys. He rides the colt is the idea. And then he rides this unbroken animal over the top of the Mount of Olives. And when you crest the top of the Mount of Olives, think Big Hill. Forget about the Colorado Rockies, okay? Big Hill, when you crest over the top of that hill, below you and before you is the city of Jerusalem, and specifically is the Temple Mount and the Temple itself. And then he rides down the Mount of Olives. And I've walked it. It's not that far. At the base of the western slope of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes through it. He descends into the Kidron Valley there. He crosses the brook Kidron. Don't think big, mighty, rushing river. Think weighty that has water when it rains. Not deep. Crosses it. And he goes up into the temple with his disciples and with this whole crowd going before and behind him. 
And I think it's important to point out that Jesus is the only one riding an animal, and so he stands way above everybody else, and he is making an enormous statement. And maybe you're thinking, well, maybe you're making an enormous statement. Like, how do you know he's the only one riding an animal? You know, with the security cameras at the temple catch all of this. It's not, it's not what happened. They're, it was understood, and there was a provision to this effect, that when you came to Jerusalem for the Passover, you entered into the city on foot. Unless you're a king, coming humbly and in peace, then you come riding a donkey. And so here's what's happened to this Galilean crowd. These crowd of Galilean Jews are like on fire, man. They get the message. While the Judean Jews who are up in the temple and up in the city are watching what's going on, and the Judean Jews, just to give you a little history, looked down upon the Galilean Jews as basically second-class Jews. There wasn't a lot of love there, is my point. And it sort of gives color to the rest of the story. But these Galilean Jews get the message, and so Matthew says in verse 8, that most of the crowd of these Galilean Jews that were traveling with Jesus took off their cloaks, these garments that were uniquely created for each individual person. It wasn't like Costco, and there's 5,000 cloaks, you know, and you can get all of them for $48. It didn't work that way, and they all look exactly the same. No, no, no. They had unique cloaks, uniquely created for them. They were recognizable by their unique cloaks. Get the idea? Each one is almost like a fingerprint. And they were the most personal of possessions. So what are they doing? They take off their cloaks and they spread their cloaks on the ground to cover over the pathway of Jesus. And what they're saying with this act is, we are placing ourselves under your feet, O King. And still others then cut palm branches from the trees, emblems of their land, and they did the same thing. They spread them out on the road before Jesus as if to say, we are, we are placing our land under your feet, O King. And now notice what they say. The crowds that went before Jesus up into the temple and that followed after Jesus up into the temple were shouting, Hosanna, which means literally, save us now to the, here it is, Son of David, to the Anointed One, to the Messiah, to the long-waited-for King. And they continued, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now in the highest. And then what does Jesus do? Because here's what He doesn't do. He doesn't say, guys, I've spent the last three years telling you to keep a lid on that. He just goes with it. The time is right. And the message is right. That's who he is. That's what he's come to do. And when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, we're told that the whole city full of Judean Jews. So imagine that. They're watching all the Galileans that, yeah, they don't really like all that much come. And they're seeing this person that all the Galileans are proclaiming as their king, riding king-like into their city. And they're thinking, what in the world is going on. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this person riding into our city as king as opposed to walking in as a pilgrim? And who all of these Galilean Jews that we don't necessarily trust or like all that much are proclaiming to be king with their shouts of save us son of David. And the Galilean crowds who were coming into the temple with Jesus being asked this question responded to the question. And they said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And here too, this is very technical language that, that they would have gotten. It's a direct reference to something that Moses himself said about the Messiah. He said, look, the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will be a prophet who speaks the word of God. They're claiming this 
for Christ before these people. And, you know, you can then begin to understand how all of that then set the stage religiously, politically, and so forth for all that comes later as we move through this holy week, all this great conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders of the Jews, the ability of the religious leaders of the Jews to stir up who? The Galileans? Maybe some of them. But mostly the Judeans to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we'll hear that cry five days from now when we come to our Good Friday service. But, but I think what we need to hear now on the front end of that is that first of all, Jesus is king and that he's my king and that he's your king and that he's our king, incidentally, whether we believe that or not, whether we receive that or not, whether we acknowledge that or not, whether we want that or not, whether we're good with that or not, no matter how we feel about that, honestly, Jesus Christ is king. Like the Galileans, they got it right. They, they missed the kind of salvation he came to bring, and we'll get to that, but, but they were right on the king thing. The Judeans missed absolutely everything. And yet here's the reality. Both sets, the Galileans, the Judeans, and everyone else in humanity, including us, in the end of all ends, History has a beginning, it will have an end. We'll all see him for who he is in that day. And we know what will happen in that moment, either in joy or in sorrow, either gladly or by compulsion, we will come to face the reality that Jesus Christ is king and that he is a king, that in this life we're living now calls us to make an intentional choice, a decision. And what is that? It's between, it's clear, it's between taking our land and our lives, ourselves and all of our stuff, all that we are, all that we have, all of that stuff, and laying them down before the feet of the one who can gather them up and do something that matters for all of eternity with them, and knowing the joy and satisfaction of that, or saying, you know what, I'm going to maintain control over my life and my things and my stuff and my absolutely everything for the next, what, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, throw in 100, whatever, doesn't matter nothing next to eternity, but I'm going to miss out on what Jesus came to bring, which is salvation. And not just from our sin, but from ourselves too. And I think in our more transparent, open, honest, self-aware moments, we realize that we need both. Yes, we need for Jesus to come, and we need for Him to save us from the way that we've lived. Got it. Day of judgment, guilty. I, I, I followed you, Tom. I, I'm, I'm with you. Blood, cover, all of that, Lamb of God, we need that. But, but I think we need more than that. We need Him to save us from the way that we're living. We need both. We need Him to save us from our compulsive behaviors, from our selfishness, from our really deep insecurities. We need Him to save us from our foolishness, from our addictions, from our immaturities, and from the effects of all of these things on us and on everybody who's connected from us or to us. We need Him to save us, guys, from the emptiness that is, frankly, the fruit of our kingship or queenship over our own lives and from the utter futility and meaninglessness of all the little kingdoms that all of us are trying by our own hands to build and which in reality in a hundred years or less not a person alive is going to know or care a thing about. We need to be rescued from our sin and selves. And what Jesus is saying graciously and openly is that's what I've come to do. So we need to hear that Jesus is king. But then secondly, we need to hear that he's an unexpected king. And what I mean by that is we need to reconcile 
our expectations with what he actually came to do. In other words, he's the king who gives us what we need as opposed to what we want or expect. Sometimes those things line up, but most of the time I seem to find that they don't line up. And we need to trust the fact that when they don't line up, he has something better in mind. Look, even the disciples of Jesus, notwithstanding all of his teachings to the contrary, in this Palm Sunday moment, think that what they're getting is a king who is going to ride up into Jerusalem and he's going to take over and he's going to militarily deliver them from Rome and he's going to give them their land back for what, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? How long are these guys going to live? Oh, they're going to live forever. But I mean, you know, here, as opposed to what he really brings which is victory, not over Rome, which incidentally hasn't existed for some time now, but over eternal things, over sin, over death itself in the end. The land he's concerned about is the eternal promised land. He's going to give you the whole world, heaven and earth. So they expect a king who comes on a horse is the idea, even though he actually comes on a donkey. But that brings me to the last point, which is simply that I think we need to hear that Jesus is a coming king. So just like the scripture said Jesus would come as the king who saves, how? By being the lamb of God who takes away the sin of all the people who claim his blood as the covering for their guilt. The scriptures have also said that Jesus will come again, and this time he will not be riding a donkey. John says in Revelation 19, verse 11, looking forward to that day of Christ's return, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a white mule, not a white donkey, but behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. On what? <laughs> and all the stuff in me, and all the stuff in you, and all the stuff in this world as we look around that we want to see defeated. It's pretty simple, really. Here's my non-exhaustive list. Like it could just go on, but then there's lunch. So think about this. Corruption, greed, oppression, injustice, degradations of all kinds, suffering, abuse, massacres, wars, holocausts, sicknesses, pain, sin, depression, addiction, deception, selfishness, divorce, and even death itself. Jesus will return at which point he'll pass over in judgment all of those who simply claim his blood as the payment for the debt that we owe to God for living for ourselves. But at which point as well, he will finally and fully and completely and definitively bring to an end everything that all of us too wants to see come to an end. So there is your king. It's who he is. He's king. Gracious, loving, humble, intimate knowledge of you come to judge and to deliver, come to bring a new world. And the proper response to that is as he's come to save you from your sin and self is to do what? It's to say, hey, you know what? Here's my cloak. Here's my land. Here am I. Save me. He's the unexpected king. He's going to give you what you need as opposed to what you want. And that sometimes is going to be pretty devastatingly disappointing as I'm sure it probably was for a lot of those people back then. But what do we need to do? We need to trust that He has a greater wisdom and that His governance over our life is good. And then lastly, Jesus is a coming King. So what's the proper response to that? I think it's to live in such a way as to make Him known. Because if this story teaches us anything, it is that He wants to be known. He wants to be known. 
And how is he known? By his spirit and through his people. That's it. So shameless plug for the phone app. You ready? Because I'm going to tell you how you can do that this week and use the phone to do it. If you don't have the app, you need to get it because here's my challenge to you. It is to take up personal worship this week and it's all here. And it is this week, and even if you've never done it before, to engage in it. Maybe particularly if you've never done it before. Entering into this rhythm of grace and allowing God's Spirit to teach you and to comfort you and to speak to you and to mold you and to shape you by the power of His Word. Enter into this. Get the push notifications for personal worship. And let them help you fill out and understand this passage of Scripture. Secondly, engage in the Holy Week services that are coming up. Set time aside, Matt will talk about this in a minute, but to authentically enter into the most powerful week, spiritually speaking, of the entire year. Don't miss this. It's for you in grace from your King. Thirdly, take your phone app, go to announcements at the bottom, go to events, go to our Sunday morning services, and by the way, we will be celebrating Easter just on Sunday morning, okay? You can't, you can't do that on a Saturday night. So we'll be back to Saturday night the week after. Saturday night is a prayer vigil. But pray over your list of friends. And when you get to this thing, you can literally just hit that, hit that, and shoot them a text message that has everything, even a map included. And invite them to come that you might make Him known. Jesus is king. He's the unexpected king. He's the coming king. So what does that mean for you as you work that through this week? And how can you make him known? Because, hey, guess what? That's what we're supposed to do. And it's our privilege to do it. Somebody made him known to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our king. And God, we thank you that he and no one else is in fact king and i pray that by your spirit you would give us the humility honestly necessary to acknowledge him as king (laughs) to embrace him as king to recognize that in him we find all the things that we cannot find elsewhere and all the things that we need lord we do need to be rescued from the way that we've lived but but we need to be rescued from ourselves too from our weaknesses and from our brokenness and all of the different manifestations of that, that that poison our lives. Lord, deliver us from the whole of it and use us to make you known. And in the doing of that, God, use us to do things that not just a hundred years from now, but hundreds of thousands of years from now and throughout all of eternity, still to your glory matter. So do these things, we pray, as we enter into this most holy of weeks. Lord, go to work in our hearts by your Spirit and through your Word and in community with your people. And let us come out the other side of this different for that and different for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.